Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. It's Dennis the Menace with a quick word before we start our conversation with Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. It's great when fellow music aficionados support the podcast, and that's why we're thankful for Cobuz. That's spelled Q-O-B-U-Z. I use Cobuz in the Menace studio. In fact, the Jethro Tull music behind me is coming from there. Cobuz is a premium music experience with over 200,000 albums in 24-bit high-res audio quality and a 40-million track catalog in lossless CD quality. You also get all the credits, digital booklets, and original reviews and articles. The entire Jethro Tull catalog is available for streaming and download in lossless or high-res quality on Cobuz. Check it out for a month free and explore the exclusive 50 for 50 audiophile playlist where you can compare CD and high-res versions of key tracks. Cobuz is for diehard music fans like you and me. Go straight to the Jethro Tull playlist at on.qobuz.com slash tull. That's onkobuzz.com slash tull. And now, on with the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, talk about their 50th anniversary, and get the stories behind the songs. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. You know, I was on Rhino.com this morning and checking things out because they have something new every day. They have the album of the day. There's information about new releases that just came out. Of course, you can find our podcast and all of the past episodes there. And there's contests. There's a classic rock giveaway happening right now that has vinyl albums from Black Sabbath, Van Halen, The Stooges, Alice Cooper's Easy Top, Deep Purple, Yes, foreigner you can add a huge new grip of vinyl to your collection and don't forget to sign up for the rhino email list so you don't miss out on anything am i allowed to enter of course you are i don't think so but (laughs) on with the podcast today's guest and I'm, i'm gonna be very transparent here you and I had had read about him and went to his website and we were like, what is Ian Anderson going to be like? And as it turns out, he is a true artist, a true gentleman. And I would say that we, we had a blast. He's so well-spoken and he remembers everything so vividly. 
great raconteur. I had a great time talking to him. What a great conversationalist. He's kind of like the perfect rhino artist because he talks sound and sounds and just more than being an audiophile, he knows every single thing that went into Jethro Tull's recordings and why they did it. It was really an enlightening conversation, and there was so much good information that we have the great fortune of being able to break it up into two podcasts. There was so much good info. There are some great Jethro Tull releases that Rhino has recently put out, including Jethro Tull 50 for 50, which is a career-spanning three-CD set, handpicked by Ian Anderson, all the songs. Anybody who's a Jethro Tull fan, either casual or really into him, is going to love this set. It's got something for people who just know the radio hits, and it's got deep divers for people that really want to sink their teeth into the catalog. And he's performing a lot of this music live on tour, too. That's right. I don't think there's any more benefit we can offer other than getting into our conversation with Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull here on the Rhino Podcast. Ian Anderson, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Well, thanks very much. I gather Rhino Records has the Jethro Tull catalogue of uh, ancient and and sometimes forgettable work over the years. But uh, <laughs> a lot, along Hardly. with that, the, the, there are a few heavy hitters. We're not going to go for either of those adjectives, Ian. <laughs> well, uh, out of 250 songs, I have to tell you, they weren't all that great. But <laughs> Oh, well, you know, well, we're, we're the thing about the Rhino podcast, and this is the official Rhino podcast, is we're not here to be fanboys. We are here to be realists. However... I'd like to start with Luton, because I only know it from the Monty Python hijacking sketch. Were there a lot of clubs for a budding, ever-changing band to master their craft, or did you dream big for London 30 miles away? That was exactly it. It was a geographical necessity to be somewhere reasonably close to London, but without London prices and London, um, I suppose, being, being also nearby the home of two new members of the band who were Mick Abrahams and uh, Clive Bunker who lived in the in the um in the in the in the vicinity of Luton it was uh, convenient because that's where they lived with their parents and therefore we we uh, <laughs> we kind of wanted to be somewhere close to them so we could rehearse which we did when we first got together in the southern part of England at the end of 1967 and just before Christmas, we rehearsed, I think, in an empty schoolroom, since it was the school holidays, and managed to uh, work out a few basic 12-bar blues songs that we could take to the clubs and pubs in the south of England and try to build some kind of a reputation for us in the early days. But Luton was not an attractive place. Uh, I'm, I'm told that... Um, it's gone downhill since then. <laughs> oh, my. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> but uh, it was certainly not an attractive place to be. And as far as I remember, there were no clubs or pubs or places to play in Luton. It was it was really it's just the fact that it was an hour away from, from London. You know, you could catch a train down into the centre of London and be there for the day or evening. And I would travel to London to meet with our agents who became our managers later in 1968, Terry Ellis and Chris Wright, who just formed an agency together in London with the band 10 years after was their protege wow. band. And oh. 
we came hot on the heels of 10 years after to be the in-house bands that they represented. And 50 years after, I'm not sure how much we're talking about 10 years after. No, 10 years after were unfortunately afflicted by one great tragedy in their professional lives, very sadly. They agreed to do Woodstock. 10 years after were one of the the bands you would describe as being a hit of Woodstock. I mean, it, it made yes. their names overnight in the USA on a, on a level that they had not previously enjoyed. And um, to put it in a, as succinctly as possible, not not too many years ago, five, ten years ago, I was at some some multi-act festival show in uh, in Germany or somewhere in Europe, and I bumped into Leo Lyons, the bass player of Ten Years After, and Ten Years After were on the bill. They just come off stage, and I just arrived there, and I said, "Oh, hi, Leo, how are you doing?" And he was had his guitar around his neck, and I could see taped to the side of his bass guitar was a a set list, and I th- I leaned over to say, oh, what have you been playing tonight then, Leo? What, what's on the set list? He said, this has been taped to the side of my guitar since Woodstock in 1969. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, 10 years after, we're, we're one of those bands that were identified forevermore with that that little kind of moment, which was the towards the end of the whole hippie thing before it yes. turned nasty, yes. which it yeah. did very very soon afterwards at Altamont and other places, and indeed in here in the UK at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970, that turned very ugly. I know because uh, the headline acts at the Isle of Wight Festival were the Moody Blues, Jethro Tull, and Jimi Hendrix wow. on the, the last of the three nights, and um, I can speak from personal recollection it turned ugly <laughs> it was the end of peace and love as we knew it wow well to celebrate jethro Tull's 50th anniversary rhino has released 50 for 50 it's a career spanning three cd box set that you compiled from all 21 of your studio recordings and you've said that you went about selecting tracks the way you did it was a revelation you picked 50 the label picked 50 and then you used different filters like tempos musical style feel and compared notes to create more than just the greatest hits can you tell us a little bit more about what seems like a really rare collaborative effort between a label and an artist well i've always had a pretty good relationship with record companies since the beginning which of course was chrysalis records in 1969 when the record company was formed um, essentially because Jethro Tull had no record deal and nobody wanted to sign us, so Terry and Chris decided, well, we'll start up a record label of our own and so we can have our act make a record and hopefully find someone to do a, a marketing and promotion kind of deal. And that was Island Records who took on uh, the, the early Chrysalis imprint. That was the beginning of Chrysalis Records. But, you know, I think uh, my relationship has always been pretty good with record companies. I, I know a lot of artists have just, you know, had the most horrendous, terrible relationships that have ended in tears. And that's not sure. been the case with me. It's been Chrysalis Records until that morphed into uh, when EMI bought, first of all, half of Chrysalis and then assumed the other 50% under a, a clause of the contract that Chris Wright had not read properly and suddenly discovered he'd lost the, the other half as well. So that then it ah. became EMI. And then, of course, EMI, when that came to an end, at, uh, half of the EMI catalogue went the way of Warner 
Warner's music and catalogue in the USA is of course with Rhino so that's how that worked but you know the guys at Warner's particularly one of the people I deal with all the time there he, he's been around in the EMI days right from the 70s early 70s onwards and he is a an encyclopedia of everything to do with pop and rock music and, and very constructively and creatively involved in all of that his name is Tim Chaxfield and he's an old guy he works at Warner's <laughs> he, um, a couple of days a week he handles all the creative box set and compilation stuff for for Warner Music in in London they came up with their wish list I came up with mine and and oddly we were only a couple of songs adrift you know which really when you, th- when you think about it that's a pretty high level of that's agreement <laughs> without even knowing that we were you know coming up with our separate lists but what sure. what I what I then did was to try and put it into a a cohesive order and and there were a couple of songs you know that we didn't agree on initially because I said well that's too much like another one that we've agreed on it's the same tempo the same feel the same you know we need to have light and shade and dynamic range so how about we do this song instead of that one then it makes for a more interesting and more varied collection and you know, to some extent, you are necessarily not just coming up with your own personal favourite of 50 songs, in my case, but I'm trying to be a little objective about trying to balance up my favourite songs with some of the ones that I think are other people's favourites too. And I know from doing set lists for shows in concert tours, like the one I'm heading off to later this week, our drummer just sent me an email asking me if the uh, the set lists for this coming weekend were as they are on Dropbox, which all the band and crew have access to. And I said, yes, yeah. exactly, yes, is the one that says Imst is for Austria and then the two shows in Germany, slightly different for different reasons. And uh, I'm pretty practised at figuring that, that kind of comfortable level of, not compromise, but finding the, the material that, you know, maybe 60% of what happens is kind of what the audience are hoping to see and hear. And the other 40%, you know, there are a few surprises, but not radical. I don't want people taking more than one toilet break during the show. <laughs> so I, I don't have Keith Richard doing his solo spot in the middle of the concert now. Oh. That's cruel but real. Nothing is easy, the time gets you worry, my friend, it's okay. You have related other places that you have a quote, distinct dislike of poetry in general, and never modeled yourself on its weird and fanciful practitioners. And that's the way you would say it. I could never say it that way. But with that, what is the difference between poetry and songwriting to your ears? Well, I think that when you write a song, uh, very often, at least in my case, the elements of the, the melody come at the same time into your head as, as do the words. Because I think when you write a song and you come up with words, they have they almost imply some cadence, some rise and fall in the way that you would read the words. You're just reading them off a page to yourself. And they also probably have some feeling of rhythm in the way that you construct some lines of lyrics. And 
because you order them into stanzas, they kind of separate themselves out into verses and choruses and middle eights. And it's a much more symbiotic experience to be a, a songwriting musician than it is merely being a lyric writer. I know there have been many great lyric writers like Bernie Taupin who would write mu- lyrics and um, with no music idea at all. And then uh, Elton John would sit down and read the lyrics and think up some music that kind of worked with the lyrics. They did it that way around. You know, there have been many other great songwriters, some who uh, would work the other way around. The lyricists would write the lyrics after they were perhaps you know, well established as a musical part, maybe even after they'd finished recording. There are people who, some artists, I have fallen into this trap myself a few times, that you you complete a, a recording and you just don't have any lyrics or any melody. And so the rest of the band are saying, well, what is this all about then? When are you going to sing the song? And then you have to, <laughs> you have to um, try to come up with something. I seem, I remember hearing an anecdote, I think, about... Uh, Bono from U2 being locked in a room somewhere by the rest of the band until he'd written the lyrics and came out ready to to actually sing the song they'd all been busy recording for the last few days. So it kind of happens that way around too, which is not really ideal. I think it's much better when you get the two things happening side by side rather than doing one of them first and the other one later. And as a songwriting musician, of course, I'm in a good position to come up with those ideas. So, for instance, the song Thick as a Brick began with a a little repeating guitar motif and the words just popped into my head, really don't mind if you sit this one out. That was the essence of a 44-minute piece of music that came from that, that, that one little opening stanza. Really don't mind if you sit this one out. My words but a whisper, your deafness, a shout I may make you feel, but I can't make you think Your sperm's in the gutter, your love's in the sink the song uh, Budapest from Crest of an Ave album. You know, I just had this little three chords and I just said, I think she was a middle distance runner. And they just rhythmically flowed into those opening three chords. And then the rest of the song just kind of built upon that. And I, I, I think it's great when you get those those ideas where something just seems unavoidably to to present itself to you as a line of music and an accompanying line of of lyrics. I think she was a middle distance runner The translation wasn't clear Could be a budding stately hero International competition in the year She was a good enough reason for a party well, you couldn't keep up on a hard track pile. Sitting on a park bench, you know, it's another one, the same kind of deal. Yeah, you yes. just get a, you get a, you get a, a riff, an idea, a musical line in your head, and out pop some words as a, establishing a establishing a stage setting, really, for a, a portrait of a person. It's establishing not not telling a story, but creating a. A person in a landscape, a a very visual work, based in fact on a photograph rather than a painting, but nonetheless it it starts off with that, um, that 
putting you in the picture, putting the, the lead character of the song in the picture. So it's rather like a stage set of a theatre play. And you've got an empty park bench and in walks some homeless person who plonks himself down on the seat. That, that's, you know, it could be waiting for Godot or it could be the song Aqualung. I've heard you say that after you finished school in Blackpool, you started playing guitar because that was the available role as well as the singer. But, and again, this is you, not me saying this, you realized you would never be a Clapton or a Jeff Beck. So you took up the flute and traded in your Strat, which was owned by Lemmy for a quote, student flute. Now, I just wanted to say that it's well known that Clapton or Beck can't play the flute like you can. So I suppose it was a good decision that has served you well. Well, exactly. I think it was, along with not doing Woodstock, one of my better career <laughs> moves was to, uh, was, was to acknowledge the undeniable superiority of Eric Clapton. And not just of Eric Clapton, but, you know, I, down in London, you know, we heard names of people like Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and Richie Blackmore, who were the, the whiz kid guitar players and doing sessions, you know, playing on other people's pop and rock records. So I knew there were a bunch of them. It wasn't just Eric Clapton, but uh, there were a bunch of great up-and-coming guitar players. And, you know, they'd been doing it for a few years, and they were way ahead of me in terms of technical expertise. And, um, you know, I felt that being another small fish in a big pool wasn't the best way of starting a career in music. I thought better if I come up with some point of difference that makes me you know, stand out from the crowd. And so for no good reason, just a whimsical moment, I thought, well, that flute looks kind of shiny and <laughs> interesting hanging on the wall of the, the music store. And how much would I have to pay for that? So he said, well, I'll take your Fender Strat, a 1960s Fender Strat, which today probably be worth about 30 grand. Um, <laughs> may, may, maybe if you knew that it had been you know, Ian Anderson's guitar, and before that, it belonged to Lemmy of Motorhead. Then um, maybe that would maybe that would round it up to maybe thirty-one, thirty-two, fifty, something like that. <laughs> you know, if you took it into a well-known pawn shop in Las Vegas, for example, they they would probably offer me twenty-five, and I would end up taking twenty. But um, whatever it was, <laughs> not it, that that it would ever happen. <laughs> financially, it didn't look like a great deal. You know, to come out with uh, a fifty-dollar flute and and a hundred-dollar sure Unidine three microphone which I coveted as a as a singer I thought this was a professional looking and sounding microphone and um, and indeed to this day I still use the modern equivalent of a, a Shure Unidyne 3 which is the uh, the ubiquitous uh, Shure Model 57 dynamic right. microphone yeah. which is the used on drum kits and all kinds of musical instruments where you want a punchy dynamic sound but not necessarily a, a full frequency response which for, for certain instruments you don't want you don't want it to be too high Otherwise, you start having to roll off high end and low end and punch out a bit more of the upper mids, which, of course, the, inherently the 57 does for you without you doing anything. It just sounds that way, makes it an ideal instrument mic or and not a bad vocal mic either. That aside, you know, I, I might have felt like I came out um, being shortchanged, but the, those two 
new possessions. First of all, the, the microphone I put to immediate use, the flute. I couldn't get a note out of it for a few months. I, I gave up. I put it back, left it sitting somewhere on a on a table, never took it out of its case again until sometime mid-December, I think, of 67. I think I'd owned it for about five months, six months by then, and I managed to get a note. Suddenly a note came out. Went, wow, brilliant. I've got a... An, and it made a noise. <laughs> and then I, you know, a few minutes later, I had a second note and then a third. And then a, I had five notes and I could play the blues. So next week I was, <laughs> I was, uh, or immediately after Christmas anyway, we were, we were, Jethro Tull became Jethro Tull and we were playing at the Marquee Club. And I was the guy standing on one leg playing the flute, which of course <laughs> was a point, a point of difference in marketing terms that set Jethro Tull Aside from all the other aspiring bands at the Marquee Club, like Fleetwood Mac and Savoy Brown and Chicken Shack and John Mills Blues Breakers and a whole bunch of folks, none of them had a flute player in, so um, people tended to remember little old Jethro Tull. Well, uh, you also had an easy load-in, didn't you? <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, some, some things just, you know, when you look back on the coincidences in life. George Bush, your ex-president, wrote a book after he was out of office called Decision Points. And it was basically a book in which he examined from a, an autobiographical point of view the various little moments in his life where he had to make decisions that, that would really be changing his life or indeed the course of history um, and, and I thought that was a very um, erudite and well thought through proposition for writing a book it was it was all these little crossroads that he faced you know from early days to having to accept that he was a, a dangerous alcoholic and quit the booze and, <laughs> and to the point where he entered politics and had to then follow in the footsteps of his father and then of course what what I always felt about the man was that he was rather ridiculed and poked fun at sometimes with good reason but you know he had a good self-deprecating point of view of his own life and yeah. when he dodged uh, a very well-aimed trainer thrown at him in a press conference somewhere you know that was a moment that displayed you know someone of physical agility and someone who could take take the ultimate insult of having a, a shoe thrown at you in, a, in an Islamic country. He could accept that um, with good grace and a bit of humor. He did a few other things like his moment of apparent indecision when he was informed of the 9-11 uh, bombing of the first aircraft crash into the building. And you can see this going through his mind. People vilified him for not being decisive and and immediately reacting in, a, in some positive or whatever way. But he did the right thing. You know, he he kind of underreacted, waited for more information, mulled it over in his head to the point where then it became apparent this really was a serious thing and he had to excuse himself and begin the terrible process of um, of dealing with the, the immediate aftermath and then taking America to war. You know, so I think the, these little moments on a grand scale, like those that faced George Bush, you know, they, they occur in everybody's life. You know, we can all look 
back and see these little moments where we could have done this or we could have done that, but we actually chose to do that. And that defined perhaps the next the rest of our lives or the next year or two or the next decade or two. So there are all those little moments, the the kind of what-if moments, that if maybe they hadn't occurred, your life would have turned out to be radically different, which is, again, a useful thought when it came to the premise of writing Thick as a Brick 2, which is, is what the underlying premise of that album was about. It was all the what-if moments if you'd done something different with your life. Stephen Wilson is somebody that, you know, speaking of choosing what-if moments, you've chosen Stephen Wilson, or Stephen Wilson has worked on a lot of Jethro Tull records, including Heavy Horses, Aqualong, Song from the Wood, Benefit Stand-Up, Minstrel in the Gallery, Too Old to Rock and Roll, the list goes on. But recently, he remixed the 50th anniversary of your debut, This Was. What do his remixes bring to the recordings that you felt needed attention? What's your take on those? Well, the reason that I, I suggested Stephen Wilson to uh, to the record company when they first started the series of of, uh, of remixes um, was that essentially he was someone that had a lot of reverence for the original work. He didn't set out to radically change things. He he set out to clarify and to put some energy, some punch, but above all, clarity into the recordings. Now, mm. if you remember back then, things were recorded on multi-track tape, and yes. so there was a lot of hiss and hum and general noise, even when there was no musical signal. And it wasn't very easy, even using noise gates or other means of uh, trying to create silence between musical notes or areas of music. You know, it wasn't that easy to do, to make a clear recording. And so in the digital age, of course, you can, you can do that relatively easily to make uh, things much more transparent so you hear you hear the sound of instruments less affected by general background noise or perhaps not being so obviously affected um, by each other since you're working in a studio with open mic sometimes you can tidy things up in a in a considerable way in the digital domain so Stephen Wilson knows how to do that and how to give things that clarity and punch. But it is a trade-off. Remember, you're working with master tapes that could be 40, 50 years old. And, you know, they will have degraded somewhat in the in the time. Uh, oxide will have started to shed from the tapes, and, and which mm -hmm. is basically you tend to be losing high frequencies. So the trade-off is, yes, you go back to the original analog tapes, you bake them in the oven very gently to stabilize and re-glue the, the oxide to the backing uh, so that it um, can be played once more very carefully and transferred to 24-track 96k digital masters that can then be worked on to to, to work uh, you know to, to do the remixing from and then those tapes are put back in their boxes and probably have continued to fall apart since they were transferred but you know you you can do it most of the time 
with uh, a fair amount of success, but it is a trade-off. You will have lost a little bit of quality just with the passing of years, but you can kind of put that back in in the digital transfer. You can start to push things and give them a little bit more punch and edge and dynamics that maybe weren't there on the tape. It is a balancing act, and Stephen's pretty good at doing the balancing act, but when you listen to the, the actual mixes that he does, the positions of instruments tend to be the same as the original mixes that I did all those years ago. Uh, the balance of instruments tends to be pretty much the same you know, relative volume of everything to everything else. But where it, where it really shines and comes alive is in the context of clarity and dynamics, of punch, of energy. And, and that's the, um, the great benefit of doing those remixes. I love how into the conversation Ian was, and I think that people are going to find part two every bit as exciting as part one. Well, the good news is we've heard part two, so we know what's coming up. I'm just going to give one little spoiler about part two, if I may. We talk about Jethro Tull being the quintessential British band, and they very much are. It's not just the language. It's also, if you listen to it, really, there is like that British folk music is absolutely woven into their style. Ian is one of a kind, and I cannot wait to share part two with the Rhino Podcast listeners. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.